Let's pray. Gracious God, Heavenly Father, cast away our doubt, our despair, by your word, by the promise of Christ Jesus. Let us be filled with your word and your promises this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So we live in difficult times, right? Very difficult times. Not only is there COVID and death, there's the fear of death as well, which can be as great or greater. We live in a time that there is political tumult, to say the least. And there are loud voices on the political scene arguing on both sides of the aisle. And this spills over into the media and social media, so much so that sometimes it's hard to even know what to believe anymore. But even more disturbing than all of that, which is disturbing, is what's happening regarding the Christian faith. There are a lot of people who now who deride the Christian faith, who say Christian with a snarl or with sarcasm. And I've been trying to tell you more and more about these things that have been taking place. Christian worship now is seen in many parts as non-essential. Gathering together as we doing are doing for many people is seen as non-essential. Oh, bars, gambling, places of immorality, well, those are open. But Christian worship, well... That's not essential, is it? But even greater than that, greater than all of that, is the apathy that has crept into many people in the Christian faith. There's a falling away from Christianity, from faith in Christ Jesus. That's why the last two sermons from Matthew chapter 25, which is about the great separation, I think were some of the most important sermons I gave this year. And we need to take that to heart. If you haven't watched those, I would encourage you to watch them. And yet, everything that I've just mentioned, everything that I've just mentioned is not new. It's all happened before. It's happened throughout the years. It happened even during the time of Jesus. And it certainly happened during the time of Jeremiah. Jeremiah was known as the weeping prophet with all of the difficulties going on, how troubled he was. Now, there were a number of kings during Jeremiah's time, and most of them were evil and rejected God, rejected Yahweh, the Lord God. There was a battle against Jerusalem by King Nebuchadnezzar. There was exile in Babylon. There was great apostasy of people just leaving the faith and then going for the pagan idols or immorality, just as what is happening today. There is a renunciation of God, of Moses, of Abraham. There was a spiritual deadness, as Ezekiel talked about, the dry bones. And the people who actually were in faith were in exile. 
So were there any promises that the Israelites could hold on to in that time of darkness and despair? Were there any promises and are there any promises that we as a church can hold on to during this time of darkness and despair? And what promises do you personally hold on to in the midst of darkness and despair? Because promises, listen, promises are what we hold on to, what we cling to during really hard and really difficult times. Advent is a time of promises. There's a song that we're going to sing at the end, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. It's this haunting melody, isn't it? And it is a beautiful song, and it speaks to the promises. It says, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appears. There's the promise, right? Until the Son of God appears, promises, Advent. We remember the promises of God given to us in Advent. It's just not about the birth of a baby. It is about the promises made full, made complete in Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus, in His Advent and His coming, we have the promise of righteousness where there is none, where there is no righteousness. So in the Old Testament, the promise was foretold that he would come. In the New Testament, he came, and the promise is that he will come again. He has, he will come, and he has come, he will come again. So this morning, let's be renewed. Let's be filled by the promises of God. And we will take a look at three things this morning. The promises foretold, the promise of righteousness, and the promise of permanency. So we will go with the promise foretold. From Jeremiah chapter 33, verse 14. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. So first of all, when it says, behold, we should pay attention. But when God says, behold, we really need to pay attention. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, Yahweh, the great I am. When I will fulfill, fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. So what was the promise that he was fulfilling? Well, I mean, quite frankly, you could go all the way back to Genesis and take a look at the promises made in Genesis all the way through. But we're not going to go back that far. We're only going to go back 400 years from when Jeremiah had his time of prophecy. So it was the time of David by the year 1000 B.C. In chapter 6 of 2 Samuel, David had defeated the Philistines. This was important because the Philistines had the Ark of the Covenant. And so when they brought the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem, there was great cheering. There was great 
exaltation. There was joy in the nation of Israel. And it was not simply joy because David had beat the Philistines or that he was coming back. It was because the Ark of the Covenant was back where it belonged in the nation of Israel. You see, the Ark of the Covenant was not simply a symbol. It meant that the true presence, the true presence of the Lord was in their midst. And so this is a triumphal entry of King David bringing back the Ark of the Covenant. And because of his faithfulness, not because he had won in battle, not because he had brought the Ark back, though he won in battle and did bring the Ark back, it was because he was faithful unto the Lord. And so this is the promise that God made him. 2 Samuel Chapter 7, starting in verse 11. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So 400 years after that, Jeremiah writes this. And then a thousand years after the promise is given to King David, foretold again by Jeremiah, Jesus was born. And we actually find his kingship announced several places. But today in the readings, in the lectionary, it has from Luke. It has from Palm Sunday, where he comes in. It's the triumphal entry. And it's, they say, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. They shouted because they had remembered the promise that God had made to David. And now not only was the ark brought back to Jerusalem, but now the king himself was here. So when they shout, uh, in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest, Matthew's account says, Hosanna in the highest. This implies to Yahweh, who is in the highest, who dwells in heaven. See, whereas the ark was where you could be in the presence of God, now Jesus himself is that covenant. Whereas the ark held the covenant God made with man, because remember, what did the ark hold? The Ten Commandments, right? Ten Commandments. Now Jesus himself is the fulfillment of the Lord's covenant. So we see the promise foretold and now fulfilled in Christ Jesus. And it is made complete because he is the king of kings, right? And he is the Lord of lords. And his throne, he reigns forever. So it is foretold, fulfilled, made complete also in his second advent, his second coming. And we have the promise given to us. If you read the book of Revelation, chapter uh, 3, 
you take a look at all the promises that he gives to the churches at the very end. Here's the promise that he gave to the church of Laodicea, which was the apathetic church. He said, though, if you actually have faith and come by faith, the promise is this. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit down with me on, the, my, on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. So we have the promise of the king and being in his reign and reigning with him forever. O come thou day spring, come and cheer. Our spirits by thine advent here. Disperse the gloomy clouds of night and death's dark shadow put to flight. Rejoice, rejoice. Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. But how can we, how can we as sinners sit on the throne with him? That's the question, isn't it? How can we do that? Because we also have the promise not of our righteousness, but his righteousness. So let us continue on here. Verse 15 from Jeremiah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall ex execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called, the Lord is our righteousness. Righteous or righteousness is used three times here in very short few verses. So we need to take a moment here and understand what this word righteous means. Because we, quite frankly, don't use it a whole lot anymore. So... Before we get to the definition, I, I need to tell you that having the proper understanding of God's righteousness, not our righteousness, but God's righteousness, is critical to our faith. It's critical to our faith that we understand this properly because our very faith, our very salvation, lives or dies on this understanding. So let's talk about righteousness. Righteousness in the New Testament, it really speaks about a state of moral perfection, faultless, innocent, and guiltless. Now, none of us here, as far as I know, can claim any right to a state of moral perfection. But we want to. Somehow, we want to. We want to get a little bit of that. A number of years ago, on Thanksgiving Day, uh, I was speaking with a, a family member about the gospel message, the gospel message itself. And uh, we were talking back and forth, and the idea of righteousness came up, or being perfect before God. And it's a difficult concept for a lot of us to grasp, because again, we want to cling to some type of righteousness that we have. And so I gave the good person quiz to this family member. Now, we've had some people join us recently. I'm not going to do the full quiz, but it really is just four questions from the Ten Commandments that I give. 
And the first one is, have you ever told a lie? Right? And everybody says, well, yeah, I've told a lie. Have you ever um, taken something that's not yours? And even a small little thing, and well, yeah, almost everybody has. And when you steal something, you're called a thief. So you're not just a liar, you're a thieving liar, right? And then I said, have you ever used God's name in a way that should not be used? And that's called blasphemy. The last one is, have you ever disobeyed your parents? And of course you have. So by your own admission, you're a lying, thieving, blasphemous, rebellious person by nature. But I, even, I didn't even get through all four because this person, by the time I got to three, started to realize the depth of what we're talking about here. And he jokingly said, oh, stop, stop, stop. Got enough of that. And what it does, it simply lays bare our idea that we are somehow righteous. But scripture says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Jesus himself said, you need to be perfect to enter heaven. And in the gospel of Matthew and Sermon on the Mount, he said that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter heaven. And then he gives an example of moral perfection. He says, you have heard it said that those of old shall not murder. And whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Wow. If that's the standard by which we must live, how could we ever stand before God? I mean, when I look at myself, I fall so far short. It's unbelievable. If you want to know what would be on my tombstone, it would say, here lies a wretched sinner. That's what would be on my tombstone. Because when I look to myself, that's what I see compared to God's standard. Not my standard, but God's. But right below that, it would say, who is saved by the grace and righteousness of Christ Jesus. That would be on my tombstone. Because when I look to Christ Jesus, when I look to him, I see the righteousness of God. You know, if you take a look at Scripture, and if you want to do the Ten Commandments in the two large sections, which is, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Christ fulfilled all of that, didn't he? He lived a life unto God. And as a matter of fact, it was God at his baptism on the Mount of Transfiguration we said, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Every thought he had was in accordance with the Father's will. Every action he did was with accordance with the Father's will. Even the miracles that he gave were not for his own pride, but for the glory of God the Father. Any anger he had was not an earthly anger. It was an anger that was a holy anger. 
Every rebuke he gave was not a rebuke for, of sin, but it was a rebuke towards sin. He gave his whole life and soul unto the Father. In the garden, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. He was without sin. He was righteous. And he loved the neighbors. He loved everyone. He loved them so much that he spent his entire time being drained practically day by day of healing, of teaching, of guiding, of exhorting, of rebuking where necessary. His love was so great that he went to the cross and died for us. On the cross, he was even mocked and spit upon. And they said he can save others, yet he can't save himself. But that was the great love that he had for you and me. In Christ Jesus, we find the full righteousness of God himself. There was not one breath he took, not one action he took, not one thought he had that was not aligned to the Father that did not care for each one of us. This is who Jesus is. So when we take a look at that little phrase, the Lord is our righteousness, it needs to stand above all others. The Lord God, Jesus, is our righteousness. Because it's upon his righteousness that we have the promise of salvation. See, this Advent season, maybe against everything else, maybe the only thing that needs to ring in your heart, to ring in your soul, to ring in your mind, is the Lord God Jesus is my righteousness. I have no righteousness but of myself, but I have the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus that is foretold, fulfilled, and made complete by him. You see, when Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, he was saying that you need to seek him. You need to seek Jesus. And what you gain from him is what he has, nothing that you have. When by faith you repent and say, Jesus, you are my Lord and Savior, he takes your rags and gives you his riches. He takes the penalty of sin and gives you life. He exchanges your lowly state for one with him on the throne. He gives you a crown of righteousness. This is what Paul said in 2 Timothy, Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only to me, but to all who have loved his appearing. The Lord Jesus is your righteousness, and if you move off that one point but a little, there is no promise for you. But there is a full and sure promise for you. By faith in him, 
It is full and complete. So when it says, behold, the days are coming when the Lord is your righteousness, that was what's promised long ago to Christ the King, given to you a crown of glory. O come, thou rod of Jesse, free thine own from Satan's tyranny, from depths of hell thy people save, and give them victory over the grave. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. It was foretold, it was one of righteousness, and it is one of permanency. And the Levitical priest and the Levitical priests shall never lack a man in my presence to offer burnt offerings, to burn grain offerings, and to make sacrifices forever. So sacrifice, offerings, atonement. This was also something that my family member, he had a lot of difficulty understanding. What's the whole thing about sacrifice and atonement? And for us, it can be difficult. So we want to go through here just a little bit slowly because it's also critical to our faith. So a sacrifice. A sacrifice is defined as offering up of something precious for a cause or for a reason. And atonement, or making atonement, is satisfying someone for an offense committed. You see, the, the Israelites in the desert and in Jerusalem, they would make sacrifices. They would atone for their sin through the sacrifice of animals because the blood, the life blood from them was a constant reminder that all life came from God himself. And so day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, the Levitical priests would stand before the holy place and make these sacrifices. But the sacrifices never fully atoned for the sins against God because how can you have a perfect sacrifice to atone for the sins of a perfect God? a holy God, a righteous God. And the problem is the Levitical priests would die. So year after year, sacrifice after sacrifice, ultimately a new priest after a new priest. But when Jesus entered, when Jesus entered into the most holy place, he did so by his own blood, right? He did so by his own blood, making a perfect sacrifice, making a perfect atonement for sins for all time. You see, Jesus was the perfect, righteous sacrifice who atoned for our sins. And that means, that means that it is done, it is complete. Because remember, what did Jesus say on the cross? It is finished. To tell us, die, it is finished. It is finished, it remains finished, and will remain finished for all time. There is no other sacrifice. And because he lives and reigns forever, he is our high priest who is forever before the throne of God, offering the perfect sacrifice that atones for all who have faith in him.
See, that was foretold in the Old Testament. It was fulfilled in the New Testament. It was explained in the letter to the Hebrews. So I would encourage you to read Hebrews chapter 7, starting in verse 23, says, The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, that is Jesus, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Do you hear that? There's the promise of permanency, a promise forever, because when the Lord makes his promises, his promises do not waver. So in Jeremiah, right afterwards. Actually, I mean, before we get this, I'm just going to ask you. Raise your hand if you can stop the sun from rising up. Yeah, some of you are like, well, I wish I could. Snooze button, right? How many of you can stop the sun from setting? You are totally powerless about that, right? With that in mind, Listen to what comes in Jeremiah just after our reading, verses 19 and 20. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Thus says the Lord, if you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night so that the day and night will not come at their appointed time, then also my covenant with David, my servant, may be broken so that he shall not have a son to reign on the throne and my covenant with the Levitical priests my ministers. Can you hear that now? Does it make a little bit more sense? He's saying, look, I'll break my covenant with David if you can stop the sun from rising and setting at their appointed time. And of course we can't, which means the Lord will keep his promises forever and he will not waver whatsoever on this. O come, O come, thou Lord of might, who to thy tribes on Sinai's height in ancient times did give the law in clouds and majesty and awe. Rejoice, rejoice. Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. These are the promises we have in Advent. So in the dark times and the doubt, it is good to recount and be filled by faith and trust what the Lord God has said, behold, the days are coming. It was foretold, fulfilled, and made complete in Christ Jesus. So this week, a couple things. To drive the dark and doubt away by renewing yourself in the promises foretold and fulfilled, now, in the sermon notes, if you want, I gave just some examples, and I gave a bunch of different scripture that you can just go ahead and read. But there are actually over 300 different prophecies regarding Jesus. So if you're interested, I, can, I have a sheet, but I thought that might be a little overkill for some people. But on the sermon notes, you've at least got some 
I don't know how many there are, but let's just say 10 different promises you can look at. To appreciate the righteousness, how we receive the righteousness of Christ Jesus, look at 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. It says, For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I'd encourage you to memorize that. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. And finally, read the letter to the Hebrews for the assurance of the permanent sacrifice and the atonement of Jesus, who is our high priest and intercessor. The light has come. Darkness cannot overcome it. And all the people said, Amen.